This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Picture. The first airplane hijacking on record occurred in 1930 when some Peruvian revolutionary seized control of a plane to flee from Peru. Since then, there has been an enormous growth in air travel, and along with it, air piracy for political purposes, profit, or sheer terror. There was a time in modern American history, a time few people know about that fundamentally transformed the way we travel. Long before we declared a war on terror, between the years of 1967 and 1972, the citizens of the world lived through a period known as the golden age of hijacking. In a post-9-11 world, in a time of the TSA, shoe bombers, plainclothed air marshals and baggage fees, it's hard to imagine exactly what commercial airline travel was like back in the 1960s. Today, we see a highly policed system with passengers treated like human cargo. But back then, any passenger could walk through an airport terminal unmolested. You could breeze onto the tarmac and onto a plane without ever removing your shoes. In some cases, you could even buy your ticket on the airplane. As strange as it may sound to our 21st century ears, there was simply no need for security back then. Metal detectors, or magnetometers, as they were known, were virtually non-existent. This was the romantic age of air travel. For every flight, passengers wore their best clothes, they marveled at an airplane's speed, at its accommodations. Flying wasn't a chore. It was an adventure. It was freedom. It was exploration for the common man. But as the 60s wore on, some people saw this booming industry as one ripe for disruption. And in the romantic age of air travel, that disruptor came in the form of the hijacker. Passengers and crew arrive in Miami aboard a Pan American hijacked jet. They were released by Castro at the request of Colombia's Foreign Minister Julio Cesar Turbay Ayala. Commercial air travel offered potential criminals an easy way to claim an enormous amount of power. With a simple demand, the lives of every passenger on board could be held for ransom. The latest, and in this case fatal, attempt took place last night when an unemployed father of seven, Heinrich von George, took over a Mohawk airliner over New York State. The criminal trend caught fire and between the years of 1967 and 1972, there were more than 300 skyjackings worldwide, with over 130 of those happening in America alone. The U.S. government is considering placing armed guards on its international flights to try to prevent hijacking. In post-9-11 America, this may sound like a national nightmare. But our collective conscience thinks of airplane hijackings as something completely different today. In the modern mind, seizing an airplane is an act of terrorism, an act that weaponizes the plane and its passengers, and which ends when the plane crashes into the side of a building. 
We're going to take a look at videotape just moments ago of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center. The building's that... exploding right now. You got people running up the street. Okay. What's going on? Okay. Just. Uh... But back in the late '60s and early '70s, hijackings were something else entirely. Most were either a political or religious protest. The majority of hijackers just wanted to be taken to Cuba as protest against the American embargo. A small percentage of others requested ransom money, almost always failing to obtain it. The hijackers proved to be a nuisance to travelers and airlines, sure, but little more than that, as almost all of the hijackings during this period ended without anyone beyond the hijacker ever getting hurt. Time magazine even published an article entitled, What to Do When the Hijacker Comes. In it, they offer advice if you ever find your flight unexpectedly rerouted to Cuba, including Havana cigars and Cuban rums are the best buys, and bring a bathing suit, because Veradero Beach is magnificent. And in perhaps the most ridiculous reaction to the rash of hijackings, the FBI entertained the idea of building an exact replica of the Havana airport in Florida, so they could trick hijackers into thinking they'd made it to save ground and then arrest them on U.S. soil. The plans were drawn up, but the dummy airport was never constructed. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger, but today, the description on one wire service, master criminal. But there was one hijacking that seemed to mark the beginning of the end of the romantic age of air travel and turn the criminal behind it into a legend. This was D.B. Cooper. In the afternoon of November 24, 1971, D.B. Cooper boarded a Boeing 727 bound from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Once the plane was in the sky, he informed the crew that he had a bomb and wanted $200,000 or he would detonate it on board. Once the FBI delivered the ransom, Cooper ordered the plane back into the air and with a parachute on his back, he jumped into history. D.B. Cooper is not his real name because the man who got away with the money, the equivalent of nearly $1.3 million today, was never caught. And soon after, the criminal success story became the stuff of legend. But this is not D.B. Cooper's story. Four months after Cooper's daring heist, with the news still buzzing about this seemingly successful hijacking, a young, small-time crook named Martin McNally discovered something else in the details of D.B. Cooper's story. Inspiration. This is American Skyjacker, the final flight of Martin McNally. I'm your host, Danny Wisentowski. In our first episode of this epic crime saga, we'll meet Martin McNally, and follow his unlikely path from middle-class suburban kid to a small-time crook with dreams of hijacking airplanes. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. In 2014, I first sat down with Martin McNally for an interview about his life and crimes. I tried to square the silver-haired 70-year-old man with this wry smile sitting across from me with the stories I'd read about him, about the things he'd done. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can't stay as long as I hope That's I can quite stay. all right. You can stay 10 minutes or an hour or whatever. Well, yeah. whatever time you want, want to stay here. Sure. About, probably about half hour, 40 that's, minutes. And then that's we'll, good. Yeah, that'll, that'll be fine. Sure. Um, you got questions. What would you like to know? So I, I guess I'm, I mean, we might as well start from the beginning if, if you're all right with that. Um, Absolutely, of course. To understand the man, Martin McNally, known to his friends and fellow inmates as Mac, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, back to the spring of 1944. I was born in uh, Trenton, Michigan on March 16th of uh, 1944, a mile or so from uh, where I grew up in Wyandotte, Michigan. Mac was one of eight kids in the McNally family. And when he wasn't at home, he was spending every waking moment with his childhood best friend, Gil George. Here's Gil's daughter, Kelly, to set the scene. Wyandotte, Michigan is an area south of Detroit. It's known as Downriver. It has its own reputation, maybe for being a little bit less refined. So that's where they grew up. They lived two blocks away from each other. They hung out all the time as kids. In the mid-1940s, the area around Wyandotte, Michigan was undergoing a great change. As more and more soldiers returned from the war, more and more houses were built on the existing farmland, and the population boomed. To accommodate new families, the main streets expanded and new businesses opened, including Mac's father's business. My father was in the shoe business, uh, Allen Park, Michigan, McNally Shoes. They had a good business, and they weren't poor. That area that they're from is kind of like a blue-collar area, but relative to that area, they were doing very well. All of my brothers and sisters uh, behaved, and I was the only troublemaker. I caused a lot of trouble. In a household with eight children and two working parents, especially as a middle child, it was easy to fly under the radar. And Mac knew it. I got in a lot of fights when I was a youngster. My father never hit me. My mom never slapped me. Even though uh, I was doing stupid things. My dad didn't like Marty's father, Walter, at all. But Kelly George remembers hearing differently from her father. Apparently, he was really kind of abusive to Marty. And according to my dad, it was just towards Marty and not the other kids. My grandma said that it wasn't unusual for them to get up in the morning and find Marty sleeping on their couch because he had to, like, flee their house because he got into it with the dad again. But it was one event in particular that made a lasting impression on young Martin McNally. In the sixth grade, I went to work for my father in the store, and he started me out at 50 cents an hour. On one of his days off, Martin joined some friends at a local watering hole, a public swim spot called Lincoln Pool. 
as I was getting ready to dive, I saw this person under the water with his hands up like this, and he wasn't moving. I automatically knew that this guy's in trouble, and I shouted out, help, help. And then I dived into the water, and I grabbed him by his arms and I pulled him up. I took him over to the side of the pool, and the lifeguard laid him down and uh, started compressing his uh, lungs. All this water came flowing out of his mouth. His name was John Davis. I saved his life. My dad picked me up from the uh, pool. I told him about that, and he says, well, that's good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise your uh, pay in the store. Now you're going to make 75 cents an hour. His small act of heroism and the subsequent bump in pay had a profound effect on Mac. Suddenly, Mac had a new mission in life. Make as much money as he possibly could. I got a uh, paper route, and uh, I had 55 customers. It was a Wyandotte Herald. I uh, delivered that twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I said, well, what I'm going to do about it is start charging my uh, customers seven cents for each paper. Within a couple of weeks, some of these customers told me, well, just across the street over here, uh, they're paying 10 cents a week, but you're charging 14 cents a week. I said, well, I don't care what they do over there. They have their business. I have my business. Even at a young age, Mac proved himself sharp when it came to finding new ways to make a quick buck. But unfortunately, his ambition didn't exactly translate to his schoolwork. There was always a draw towards money. And I was reasonably good with math until uh, I got into the high school when I bombed out. Bombing out, in this case, was the moment that 17-year-old Martin McNally learned he'd failed a religion class and would have to retake it. But instead of doing that, he simply changed his direction. I went down from there into the uh, principal's office. And I got on the phone and I called a Navy recruiter in Detroit. I told him who I am and I said, I would like to join the United States Navy. He's on his way to Pensacola, the Navy's Annapolis of the air for flight training for 18 months of the best training for aviators in the world. I uh, took the oath on October the 5th of 1961. Within days, was on the train to uh, Great Lakes uh, Naval Station in uh, Great Lakes, Illinois. I was the only Navy man who was sent to uh, Aviation Squadron. We were a sub-hunting outfit. That's what our planes did. But my position was electrician. This meant Mac's job was to crawl from the flight deck into the bowels of the airplane while it was airborne hunting submarines over the open ocean. Even though Mac never saw active combat, this was the height of the Cold War. A Navy recruit had to be prepared for anything, even the worst, even capture. It was here that he learned he had the grit required to survive just about anything. Escape and evasion training that I had. It was a two-week course on Whidbey Island, and there was uh, probably 15 or 20 servicemen who uh, were involved in that. And what they would do is they would have you kneel down, then they would put a bar between your legs, and then have you touch the floor with your back. And the pain is excruciating. And while you're down on your back on the floor, they would pour water on you, ice water. And a lot of, a lot of people broke. But uh, I made it through. The problem is that 
Couple of weeks later, my right knee started to swell. This made crawling through the bowels of Navy scout planes significantly more difficult. But Max still managed to get the job done. Shortly after that, Max's unit was moved from Washington to Kodiak Island, Alaska, where he continued to work as an airplane technician despite his injury. While the new location was supposed to be one of the quieter military outposts, Max's assignment there was marked by catastrophe. Scientists estimate that the Alaska earthquake was 35 times as strong as the San Francisco quake of 1906 and 10 times as strong as the Assam Egypt Temblor, until now rated as the greatest shock in history. The Great Alaskan Earthquake of uh, 1964 happened on uh, Good Friday, March the 27th, at approximately 5.15 p.m. It was a 9.5 on the Richter scale. To this day, the Great Alaska Earthquake is the second largest earthquake ever recorded. While Max's unit avoided any casualties, their barracks were destroyed, planes were scrambled as rescue efforts were immediately underway, and time was split between building new facilities for the Navy and assisting the rescue operations in Anchorage and the surrounding populated areas. It was during this period when an event occurred that would change Martin McNally for life. About three or four days later, at approximately 9.55, and I hear a noise, and the noise went like this. I said, damn, it sounds like a plane crashed. An aircraft returning from a rescue operation had crashed on its approach nearby. It was a crisis. And it was here that Mac discovered he could handle one. I said, listen, they need a rescue crew. We need six people right now. I said, one, two, three, four, five, six. You guys are all uh, uh, part of the rescue crew. Let's go. And we ran to a, a truck, and it took about 10 or 15 minutes to get to the bottom of the mountain. The first thing that I saw was uh, the wheels. And I see that uh, this plane is burning. Now, there, there was a stench of burning flesh, bad stench. I saw four and a half bodies. One of the bodies that I saw, the feet were ripped off the body. And it, it appeared that he had tried to walk without his legs, and he fell over. And I saw one person who had his skull crushed in. I knew that ground control in Kodiak was responsible for this accident. I made a decision there that I'll never fly again, ever, as a crew member. All these years, since 1964, I can visualize right now this skull that was smashed in this body of this serviceman who didn't have any feet and black singe on his uh, leg. I can see that. And the plane just burning. It was tragic, but the fact of the matter is that decision on that day saved my life.
In the aftermath of an airplane crash that killed members of Max Platoon, he made the decision to never fly as part of a crew again. To ensure he wouldn't fly, he leaned on his prior knee injury and was grounded due to medical concerns. Still, he worked on the base, supporting flight crews from the ground. It was during this period that a second accident occurred, this time involving his own unit. On November the 22nd of 1964, at approximately 10 a.m. in the morning, the flight that I was supposed to be on crashed. All aboard was killed. The dude that took my position on the plane, boom, he's dead. One guy, he was due to get out in two months. Boom, he's dead. Another guy was a career man, dead. Boom, he's gone. This accident seemed to break Mac in ways he still can't fully process. Something inside him just snapped. And shortly after the accident, an altercation occurred between Mac and a fellow officer over a small sum of money. This led to his general discharge in December of 1964. Uh, I was going to get out of the Navy anyway, but uh, the accident in Kodiak, Alaska, you know, that was, that was profound. So I got out of the service on December the 15th of 1964. My brother uh, had been uh, discharged two weeks before I got out. And we got into my uh, 57 Chevy and uh, drove back to uh, Wyandotte. Straight through, it took about three days. Didn't stop for anything. Martin McNally returned to his hometown a changed man. He'd witnessed true human horror and his contempt for authority was only inflated as a result of his time in the Navy. As such, he had a hard time adapting to civilian life. Not for lack of trying. My father wanted me to work in a shoe store. He said, I, I've got a job for you. And I told him, no, I'm not ready to go to work. That really hurt him. He, he had the uh, architectural drawings to, for another store, and he was going to call it uh, McNally & Son Shoes. During this time, Mac was lost, a man without a mission. He'd been shaken by his time in the military, and now he was dissatisfied with the simple life he'd returned to. Initially, I didn't do anything. All I did was uh, screw around. Eventually, Mac reconnected with his old friend, Gil George, and they filled their nights driving around Wyandotte and haunting local establishments. Here's Gil's daughter, Kelly, again. So one common theme about my dad and Marty is that they kind of were rebellious. They were out at some all-night hamburger joint, and my dad was arm wrestling with another guy. During the arm wrestling, his arm just, like, snapped back. His arm broke. <laughs> so he told Marty, he's like, Marty, you got to take me to the hospital. My arm's broken. And Marty's like, didn't believe him. Marty thought he was joking. And he's like, oh, yeah, right. And he's like, no, really, you got me. <laughs> got to get me to the hospital. And so my dad's kind of imitating Marty. He's like, so here we are in the car, and Marty stops at a red light. He's like, to do. And my dad was like, Marty, you've never stopped at a red light in your life. What are you doing? Get me to the hospital. So it was like, always the common theme was that they didn't follow rules. They didn't stop at red lights. They drove their car too fast, that kind of a thing. And it wasn't long after his return home that Max started to find new, rebellious ways to fill his time. Within, uh, I think, uh, 30 or 40 days, very fast, I was uh, doing some screwy uh, 
crimes in the area. I pulled three stupid armed robberies. $50 here, $80 there, $150 on another day. These were uh, mom and pop stores. And I would go in at 10 o'clock at night or so. I would go up to the clerk and I'd just tell them uh, I'd like a pack of cigarettes. And uh, when they'd turn around to grab the cigarettes, I'd tell them this is a holdup and uh, all I want is the money and the cash register. So let's get it done. There's no excuse for it. I should have uh, immediately gone to work. I should have gone to work for my father. I should have done a lot of things. But I didn't. Mac was lucky during his first attempt at a life of crime. In Michigan, playing with armed robbery, even implied, could carry decades in prison. But Mac never got caught. Not then, anyway. Knowing it was only a matter of time before his luck would run out, Mac gave the straight life another shot. He got a job in Detroit's robust automotive industry. He made new friends. And one night at a co-worker's dinner party, he met a woman. I saw this uh, good-looking, good-looking blonde, and I said, damn, that's a good-looking girl. Uh, I'd like to meet her. So I was introduced to her, and we hit it off. That blonde was Wanda Lee Glacken, and Martin McNally was in love. Within, uh, within a year, uh, we married. Gave her a nice ring, one-carat uh, diamond, we had a nice wedding. We honeymooned in St. Joseph, Missouri, and uh, then we, we bought a house in Wyandotte. Life was good for Mac in the summer of 1966, and it's not hard to imagine what could have been for him and Wanda. Kids, travel, retirement, the American dream. If only Mac hadn't met a man named James Petty. My wife was friends with Jim Petty's wife. We used to go over to uh, their house and uh, play uh, cards. We got to talking, and uh, at the time, he was in uh, Clark Service Station. Now, the first couple of months, he didn't disclose uh, anything to me. But then, as he got to know me, he disclosed that what he was doing in the station. And apparently, he was... Uh, beating Clark Oil out of uh, a lot of money, as it turned out, probably $70,000 or $80,000. Every pump had two meters, one registered gallons and one registered the money. And what he would do, uh, he would break the seal on the pump, pull out these uh, meters and take them in his office, turn on the uh, air compressor, and turn it back until he got it where he wanted to go. If he wanted to make uh, $300, uh, he would turn, turn the meter back $300, and then he would run the gallons back. Uh, he told me that he can get me in a station. And I said, okay, let's get it done. Mac ran a scam out of a Clark oil station for months, making just under 10 grand until he was forced to shut it down in fear of getting caught. But he'd once again tasted forbidden fruit, that clever thrill of the successful con. Instead of counting himself lucky and returning to his normal life, he began to search for his next scheme. This one would add counterfeiting to his resume. I had met this guy, and he was a printer, 
He was a tool maker. He had a, a device. It was a punch. I decided that I would like to do these counterfeit quarter slugs. That's right, counterfeiting quarters. Just one step above a literal nickel and dime scam. But this one, if performed repeatedly, could bring in a lot of dough. I could punch out approximately five to $600 in these slugs. And to convert them into cash, I would uh, go into laundromats, coin machines at laundromats, and drop in all these quarter slugs and pull out the change. Just like the paper route, just like the oil scam, Mac had once again found a way to exploit the system. And for months, the scam had worked. But then Mac got drunk at a party, ran his mouth with a few too many details, and left to hit up the nearest laundromat. I went to a laundromat in Ecorse, Michigan, and I went in there and I was dropping these uh, slugs into these, this change machine. Boom, 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 all this stuff's coming out. And a cop car rolls by. He stops and uh, the guy gets out of the car and comes into the laundromat. He says, what are you doing here? I take off running, he says, stop, stop, stop or I'll shoot you. I says, I haven't done a goddamn thing for you to be shooting me, asshole. And I climbed over a fence and he grabbed my butt and he tried to pull me back. And I still got over the fence. And then there was another fence that I was gonna jump over. And instead of grabbing my butt to pull me in, he pushed my butt. And I fell down and dislocated my right shoulder. So I couldn't get up and I was, it was over. His luck finally caught up to him. And so did the police. That's how I got arrested. They took me down to the station. It may have been a $1,000 bond, but my wife came down, paid the bond, and I got out. No one wants to wake up to a call from the police saying your partner is behind bars. Wanda McNally was starting to realize the kind of man she had married. Well, we're still living together, and uh, we're doing okay. She's working, and uh, I'm not doing too much at all. Uh, after a while, things uh, did stress up, and uh, she went to live with her mother, and I, I was at home living by myself. Yet despite his marriage falling apart, Mac continued running scams. After the counterfeit quarters, it was a scheme involving shell gas credit cards, compliments of his old friend James Petty, who had moved laterally from Clark Oil to Shell Oil, running a station and scamming them with credit cards instead of rolled back meters. And it was in January of 1972, Jim Petty and myself were in, a, in his Cadillac going to uh, Shell Station on Plymouth Road in uh, Michigan. And it came on the radio at approximately 10 a.m. It was the D.B. Cooper case that uh, changed my life. I considered uh, that that's the way to do a score. And this was the moment. At the peak of the golden age of hijacking, this was where Martin McNally first learned the details of the D.B. Cooper skyjacking. It was an ordinary flight from Portland to Seattle turned extraordinary when a man in black registered as D.B. Cooper made a bomb threat. Mac had found inspiration. And in that moment, he would choose a path that would land his face on TV screens and newspapers across America. This small-time crook 
was going to execute his own bigger and bolder skyjacking score. Next time on American Skyjacker, Martin McNally hatches and attempts to execute his plan. I walked out of the airport, I lit a cigar, a dollar cigar, lit it up, took a draw, and I said to myself, this is it, this is gonna work. And I saw this man standing at the back with a man's wig, dark glasses, surgical gloves, and a machine gun. And I'm standing there with my gun, and I know what is on his mind. He wants to take me out. He wants to be the hero. American Skyjacker is written, created, and produced by Eli Kouris and Joshua Schaefer of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment. Hosted and co-produced by myself, Danny Wisentowski. Co-produced and sound edited by Nick Sinakis. Assistant edited by Max Drankpole. Associate produced by Devin Manzi. And archive produced by Chris Morecambe. Our artwork is by Jeff Quinn. Music composition is by Michael Kramer with assistance from Adam Dibb of Tin Man Music. Sound mixing by Shindig Music and Sound based on the beach in Playa del Rey, California. Host recording by Clayton Studios in St. Louis and additional sound mixing and voice recording by Christy Williams. Archive legal by Davis Wright Tremaine and production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC. American Skyjacker is a co-production between Imperative Entertainment and Pegalo Pictures. Follow us on Instagram at American Skyjacker or at Pegalo Pictures. And please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>